welcome to the 41st episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Keiji Sao from the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute, part of the National Institutes of Health. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you, Keiji, for joining me today. Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. You received your undergrad degree from Chenghuai Normal College in Weifang, China in 1980, your Master of Science degree from Northeast Normal University in Changchun, China in 1985, and your PhD from the University of Geneva in Switzerland in 1996. You were then a Damon Ronyon Walter Winchell Cancer Research Postdoctoral Fellow at Stanford University in the laboratory of Gerald Crabtree, and you then joined the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute in 1999 and were appointed a senior investigator in 2007 and the director of the Systems Biology Center in 2011, and you are still there today. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Okay, so uh, my major in college was chemistry, and uh, I got a Master of Science degree in organic chemistry in graduate school. So when I took a biochemistry class during my graduate study, I found actually the chemistry training was very helpful for me to understand the principles of biochemistry. So I thought it should also help to answer many questions in biology. Uh, at the same time, uh, I found many unanswered biological questions were very interesting. And thus I decided to pursue a research career in biology. And... Uh, As to how I decided to pursue science as a career, it may be related to my naive curiosity from my young age about how things work and also my love of freedom to pursue answers to questions. So you did your PhD in Switzerland. Um, how did that come and how did you decide to go to Switzerland? Oh, I decided to do a PhD abroad after I got my Master of Science degree in China. Uh, from literature, I found that some research work at the University of Geneva was very interesting. Uh, then I wrote to a professor and expressed my interest in doing my PhD there. So I was lucky enough to be accepted and then joined the University of Switzerland. Mm -hmm. So um, coming to a science, uh, which focusing on investigating epigenetic marks and nucleosome positioning genome-wide, so I did a PubMed, PubMed search and it resulted in more than 250 publications with your name on it, which is quite impressive. <laughs> um, and I want to start in the early 2000s. There you published a few papers on genome-wide mapping of histone modifications. And this culminated in a 2007 cell paper with the title High Resolution Profiling of Histone Methylation in the Human Genome. So what was, it like, what was it like to study histone modifications 20 years ago? And how did you approach these studies? And what were the main results then? Uh, so about 20 years ago, so cheap PCR assay was the main assay to examine the enrichment of histone modification signals uh, at the selected chromatin regions in the genome. And the goal of my lab was to develop tools to examine all the target sites of his modifications or transfer factor binding on chromatin. So we started by developing traditional sequencing-based tools to analyze his modifications. Uh, the first assay 
we developed was a GMAT, uh, which is, is the abbreviation for genome-wide mapping technique. Uh, it used the traditional sequencing method to examine chip-enriched DNA. So we first applied it to analyze genome-wide his modifications in human T cells. Our main findings include that uh, hasten acetylations are enriched at the promoters and enhancers to form something like islands for signals. And they are correlated with expression of genes genome-wide. Secondly, we found that the active hasten H3 lysine 4 methylation and the repressive H3 lysine 27 methylation coexisted at many important genes in T cells to form the so-called bivalent domains. And the relative levels of the lysine 4 and the lysine 27 methylations are related to the expression of underlying genes. So um, you also focused on nucleosome positioning in the human genome. And this was about the same time. And this was summarized in a 2008 cell paper. Um, there you generated the first genome-wide maps of nucleosomes. Um, what methods were available and what methods did you use to map the nucleosomes and what did you find there? Uh, so the uh, micrococca nucleus is known to degrade uh, nucleosome uh, linker DNA, but leave the nucleosome core particles intact. Therefore, based on this, we developed a technique called micrococonuclease sequencing, or MNAS-seq for short, to study genome-wide nucleosome positions. So by analyzing the genome-wide nucleosome positions in human T cells, we found that nucleosomes are phased and positioned at transcription start size of active genes and are randomly positioned at the inactive genes. So the nucleosome phasing is related to RNA polymerase II binding at the gene promoters. So we also found that T-cell receptor signaling induced reorganization of nucleosome structure at the enhancers, which is actually correlated with the gene activation. So then uh, when you, uh, uh, and I didn't write this down, but um, yeah. uh, the MNAs, uh, you, was this the first time that MNAs was used in those kind of essays? Because MNAs nowadays, I mean, is used for, for different methods to study chromatin architecture, now cut and, uh, cut and run, and then those methods use the MNAs. But was this like the first time that it was used or did you, um, was this based on other publications already? Uh, so micrococonuclease was used to uh, analyze nucleosome structure or position uh, in cells uh, long before we used this uh, for mm -hmm. our technique. So our contribution was to combine micrococonuclease digestion with the next generation sequencing okay. mm -hmm. to create a method for the genome-wide analysis of nucleosomes. Um, how do you see those methods that now also use the MNAs um, for um, genome-wide um, chromatin studies? Uh, so the current methods using MNAs mainly, for example, is uh, the cheek chromatin immunocleavage method. And that's fused micrococonuclease with the protein A or direct conjugated micrococonuclease with a specific antibody against his modification or transmit factor. And then uh, through the antibody 
binding microcalculus is recruited to a target size on chromatin, and then cleaves chromatin, and generates small fragments that can be amplified by PCR. So this is a way to analyze the target size of his modification or transfractive binding in the yeah. genome. So in the late 2000s, you also published some papers on the development of the chip seek technology and uh, this is a very important uh, method obviously um, some focused on the method itself while others focused more on the bioinformatical analysis downstream of the vet lab right so which adjustments were you able to make to make chip even more suitable for epigenomics analysis uh, so you know that uh, the traditional chip pcr assay is convenient to study one or only a few target regions Uh, for either his modification or transformer factor binding uh, on chromatin. But it is very difficult to use it for many genes. And the GMAT, the method we developed, used the traditional sequencing method. Uh, it, it could cover the entire genome. However, it is, the sequencing part is tedious and it's not really practical to do the whole genome sequencing. <clears throat> Therefore, it is the combination of chip with the next generation sequencing techniques, that makes the ChIP-seq more suitable for epigenomic studies. Yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> the sequencing is like expensive. I mean, it was at least uh, back in those days, like in the in the late 2000s, but now nowadays it's becoming more and more um, accessible because uh, sequencing gets uh, yeah, cheaper and yeah. cheaper, maybe yeah. every day, right? Yeah, exactly. So this is also maybe a, a Yeah, not, not that the scientists themselves have to improve the methods, but also have to rely on the techniques to get cheaper, right, to be um, accessible. Oh, yes, yes. And the, the cost of uh, sequencing originally was uh, very high, but now it becomes much, much better. Yeah, that's, that's true, yeah. Um, next to the histone modification itself, um, you were also interested in the enzymes that modify chromatin, obviously. Um, this was then published in 2009 in Cell with the title Genome-Wide Mapping of Histone Acetyltransferases and Histone Deacetylases Reveals Distinct Functions in Active and Inactive Genes. Um, so where can histone acetyltransferases and deacetylases be found and how do they function? Yeah, as you know, has are co-activators and the HNX are co-repressors of a transcription. So uh, uh, has were believed to be associated with the only active genes and the HNX be associated with the only silent genes. And our unbiased analysis of has and HNX on chromatin using ChIP-seq revealed that both of them are highly enriched at the promoters and enhancers for active genes. And we also found that both of them are located at a repressed gene promoters. So this data led us to make two hypotheses. The first one was co-repressors HDX have functions at active genes, possibly to reset chromatin for the next round of gene activation or to safeguard the genome stability and integrity. So the second hypothesis was that the co-enrichment of both HDX and HAS at silent gene promoters keep the genes repressed and also at the same time prime them for future activation. So this means that um, HDX are maybe there to, yeah, because if there is a lot of transcription going on, they might, they might 
even get more active to just uh, keep the gene from damage? Uh, yeah, HDAX could be there like uh, to remove the acetylation signal and therefore somehow reset the chromatin and, and uh, to the basal status or some, somehow to uh, maintain the chromatin. Uh, you know, too high acetylation may make the chromatin more susceptible to, uh, uh, to uh, DNA break or to whatever damage caused by other signals. Therefore, removing of this excessive uh, hasten acetylation signals may be important for, to safeguard the genome stability. And is it maybe also important to have both there to be able to yeah, react to stimuli from the exterior more, more quickly so that you can go oh, to yeah. deactivating into the deactivating um, state more quickly? Oh, yeah, that, that's how it primes the, uh, the genes for activation process. Because once the cells see a extracellular signal, it should sometimes need to activate some genes very quickly. And the presence of a has may make this process much faster. Yeah. So that's how it primes the gene for activation. Um, you also investigated the role of H3.3 and its function in embryonic stem cells, um, transcription, and its interaction with, interaction with the chromatin modifier complex NERD. So what did you find out about this uh, histone variant? Uh, so actually, uh, we performed more studies on the histone variant H2Z than H3.3. Okay. <laughs> and, and, so uh, in our 2007 CHIPSIC paper, we first profiled the genome-wide distribution of H2Z in human CD4 T cells and found that uh, it is highly enriched at active gene promoters and enhancers. And its enrichment is positively correlated with the expression level of the genes. And then we hypothesized that it could contribute to gene activation. Uh, in, the, in the subsequent collabor collaborative work with uh, Gary Felsenfeld of NIH, uh, which was published in 2009, we found that incorporation of H2Z together with H3.3, destabilizes nucleosome particles. And thus, we hypothesize that this property could make chromatin accessible and facilitate the transcription factor binding. So following this work, we demonstrate that H2Z is highly enriched at promoters and enhancers, and is required for both efficient self-renewal and differentiation for, mure, uh, for mouse embryonic stem cells. And uh, H2Z deposition leads to an abnormal nucleosome structure, decreased nucleosome occupancy, and increased chromatin accessibility. And we showed that knockdown of H2Z compromised the pluripotency transcription factor OCT4 binding to its target genes and led to decreased binding of the MLH3 lysine 4 methylation complexes to active genes. So furthermore, H2Z knockdown also decreased the binding of the PRC2 H3 lysine 27 methylation complex to repress genes. So based on these results, we propose a model that H2Z mediates such contrasting activities by acting as a general facilitator that generates access for both activating and the repressive complexes in the cells. So, um, yeah, I also, 
yeah, read and 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 uh, heard that, uh, or yeah, it, it's generally believed that H2AZ is also part in um, yeah DNA repair, DNA damage uh, processes. Is this uh, somehow yeah linked to the it being present at active sites because maybe active sites are also more prone to DNA damage? Yeah, all of these are uh, uh, are consistent with the. H2AZ as a general facilitator, because it doesn't matter as a transcription machinery or DNA repair machinery, uh, they need access to their target size on chromatin. So in this sense, then H2AZ uh, plays critical roles in all of these processes. Is this like a cause or consequence of the activity? So is H2AZ put there to activate the transcription or is it put there because it's active? Uh, in many cases, H2AZ may be act upstream of the transcriptional activation. And, and because in uh, many genes, especially enhancers, you don't have the transcriptional activation yet, but you already have H2AZ at their enhancers. So I believe that it acts upstream of the activation itself. So meaning that H2AZ is there first and then the activation begins? Yes. So also what is uh, yeah, a process that is important in uh, gene activation is chromatin looping and enhancer and promoter yeah. interactions. Um, and you in, is the, uh, uh, investigated this over the last couple of years and your team did also some work in the area on T-cells. Um, um, you also referred to T-cells already. Um, so what did you find out about chromatin looping and what role does CTCF play there in those T-cells and in general? Yeah, um, CTCF is a very interesting factor. It is extensively studied uh, during the last 10 years or so. And our early work indicated that uh, CTCF is enriched at the boundaries between active and the repressive chromatin regions. But in addition to these regions, CTCF also binds to many regions near enhancers of transcription. And our recent data during the last several years indicated that CTCF facilities enhance promoter interaction and help to maintain gene expression stability. So our working model is that CTCF together with the cohesin brings enhancers and the promoters to spatial proximity through chromatin looping. So chromatin looping there then facilities enhance promoter interaction required, which is required for transcriptional activation. So uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So CTCF was was uh, is known to be present at the TED boundaries, and then so bring the TED boundaries together, and then loops form, right? And then yeah. in the in the TED and in the loop, there is some magic going on to bring uh, promoters and enhancers together. So are you also saying that um, the CTCF is not only present at the TED boundaries, but also at genes and promoters? And, and oh yes. Uh, so you're right. So uh, CTCF is located at the test boundaries, but genome-wide, only about 20% of CTCF binding sites are located to the test boundaries, and 80% are within test domain. And actually, if you look at the enhancers, so almost 50% uh, of all enhancers, uh, you, you could find a CTCF binding sites within 10 to 20 KB region. And so I believe in those CTCF binding sites uh, could, you know, mediate 
the enhanced promoter interaction by working together with cohesion to bring these enhancers to spatial proximity to promoters. And then once you have a high concentration of a promoter enhancer in a, uh, a in the local space, and then you would be able to uh, allow enhancer to find their target promoter easily, and therefore promote gene activation. So you said that um, next to enhancer, there are CTCF binding sites. But what is next to the promoters that facilitates this contact? I mean, what, what does uh, CTCF or cohesin then bind at the promoter to make this um, connection work? Uh, in some nearby regions, you have uh, nearby regions of promoters. You, you, you do have CTCF binding okay. sites. And also, uh, you know, many promoters uh, and even not actively transcribed promoters, they, they may have paused uh, RNA polymers too. And then uh, somehow you also have a cohesin uh, bond there. So mm -hmm. cohesin uh, interacts with the CTCF. By that way, it, it could actively recruit, you know, form the uh, chromatin loop and the recruiting enhancers to the nearby regions of okay. promoters. Oh, very interesting. So you have like the big loops and then there are many small loops forming uh, because there's the promote and the enhancer interaction in those TEDs. Oh, yes, exactly. Okay. And that, that's, that's the model we are thinking about. Okay. Over the, uh, over the years, you also developed and improved existing methods, like we already talked about MNA-seq, um, then also single-cell DNA sequencing, track looping, single-cell MNA-seq, also going into the single-cell space, then as single-cell chick-seq. So which one would you consider to have the most impact, and what has it enabled you to find? Uh, I would say it is chick-seq. Okay. Uh, because numerous labs around the world have used and are using this technique to address their own biological questions. And furthermore, numerous valuable data sets have been generated using this technique as important resources. Uh, and uh, these resources are useful to many labs who don't directly use this technique. Uh, and uh, I, I believe it really helped to move the science forward. And in my own lab, uh, ChIP-seq helped us to discover the unique distribution patterns of different haste modifications at the genes and their regulatory regions, and also the co-enrichment of Has and HDAX at active genes and prime genes, and also specific genome-wide target sites for chromatin binding proteins such as CDCF, various transformer factors, and chromatin remodeling complexes. So these findings shed a light into their functions in a very cellular context so um <laughs> it's nice that you um, mentioned chipseek here um what would you consider the most important step of chipseek uh so the most important step uh you mean how for how to work how how yeah, to, to get to get a successful chip experiment uh, okay so <laughs> <laughs> for the uh the the most important uh factor is the antibody uh, and uh, you need to have a highly specific antibody in order to have the chip seek work well uh, and, and then uh, it is the chromatin fragmentation step and uh, so you cannot over fragment uh, chromatin uh, especially for some uh, transformer factor binding 
But for his modification chips, it, it, it's much easier. You can uh, use like a micrococonucleus digestion to uh, cleave chromatin uh, in order to get appropriate size of a chromatin fragments for the chip uh, seek experiments. And uh, for transmitter factors and, and uh, other chromatin binding proteins, uh, it is better to use sonication, for example, to break down chromatin. Because you wouldn't have a, a, a sonication bias? Uh, you wouldn't have a sonication bias, and also uh, you don't degrade the linker DNA, that mm. is, uh, binding size for many transmitter factors, to two small fragments so that you can bring them down to the enrich the DNA. Yeah. Uh, That's nice that you talked about antibodies because uh, then uh, I, I immediately think of a follow-up question. So what, what are the best antibodies that you can think of? Is it monoclonals, polyclonals, recombinant antibodies? What would you suggest? Uh, so actually, uh, all antibodies in a, uh, really depends on specific antibody. And, and uh, uh, some uh, polyclonal antibody works well And some monoclonal antibodies also work well. So really it depends on specific modification, specific factors. So I need, really need to test to see which works better. Yeah. So um, now we are in the light of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and the discussion about vaccinations is going on and we are now recording it on the 23rd of November. Uh, this will come out a little bit later, but the first vaccines are now uh, evolving and are supposedly coming out in the next couple of weeks and the vaccination will start. Um, so I found one publication that was especially interesting in this uh, space. Uh, it was in 2017 and it was a scientific reports paper. You investigated the ability of memory T cells being reactivated. So how does epigenetics come into play here? And maybe you can also comment on a little bit on the COVID-19 and this, uh, if you have something to say about that. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, basically, in, in, that, in the paper you mentioned that we uh, investigated uh, how memory T cells, uh, the memory is stored. Actually, uh, uh, our data suggests that the memory is stored uh, is in the epigenomes. And so uh, I think it's really related to uh, the response like a, of individuals uh, to COVID-19. And because it is well established that epigenetic modifications play critical roles in immune response by regulating the expression potential of a critical immune genes. So I believe that the differences in response of different individuals to COVID-19 may be encoded in their epigenomes of the immune system. Thus, it will be interesting to investigate the immune cell epigenomes in the context of COVID-19 in order to understand the disease better and develop more efficient therapeutic strategies. Yeah, so now everybody is, uh, at least in, in Germany, where I'm located, yeah. um, everybody's looking at the, the antibodies that stay in, in, uh, in the serum of the patients. But mm. um, it, it also reported that uh, the T cells might be the key um, to reactivating and to the long-term uh, Uh, answer to 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 the coronavirus. Um, mm. So, what what do you think? Is it the T cells that uh, yeah that convey the immunity, or is it the more the antibodies? Uh, I believe T cells must be involved, uh, play critical roles in this process. But the whole picture needs to be investigated. Uh, yeah. 
Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So to finish off this uh, interview, I have two more rather general questions. The first one being, uh, did you at one point of a career face the situation that you reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> this happened <laughs> This happened several times during uh, my graduate studies, postdoc periods, as well as during my career as a group leader. Uh, one example uh, was... Uh, Uh, during my postdoc training, actually, after uh, also after my, I set up my own group, I was interested in finding target size, uh, target genes of the chromatin modeling buff complexes uh, and his modification enzymes in cells. However, we spent a lot of time uh, at that time, but still failed in, identif in identifying their target genes on chromatin using then existing techniques. And therefore, we, uh, we decided to overcome the problem by developing new techniques that can be used to identify targeted genes on chromatin. And that's how we, uh, we turned to develop GMAT and ChIP-seq uh, uh, in my lab. And so this strategy actually uh, worked well for me for a number of such situations during my research career. So if there isn't a tool like <laughs> that uh, would enable you to study the things you want to study, you just develop a new tool to be able to study the things you want to answer. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's, that's a nice approach, I must say. Yeah. <laughs> so in the last 30 minutes, we have taken yeah. a journey through your scientific oh. career. Um, can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings? And uh -huh. uh, I know we missed a lot of your work, but is there something we missed that you still want to share? Uh, so, we, we de developed several techniques that are widely used by colleagues in the field and generated several resources, including a genome-wide nucleosome distribution, haste modification, transformer factor binding, as, a, as well as chromatin looping. Uh, I think technology development is a, a fruitful field, and this helped my research work, and it is also helpful to the field. And finally, I'm a, a true believer that technology can drive science to move forward. So, yeah, this is uh, what we learned through, uh, during this interview, I guess. Um, so thank you, Keiji, for your time and for being on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. This was the 41st episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews, comments, and give you a shout-out on a future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotif.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog Motivations at activemotif.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.